0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on The Pod. From the port to sawmills to the office, we look at Canadian workers and their fight against automation and outsourcing. Plus, Victoria tells Surrey to move forward with the Surrey Police Service and dump the RCMP. Do the finances add up or will BC taxpayers have to come to the rescue again? Plus, born and raised in Metro Vancouver, producer Ryan has surprisingly never been to Stanley Park. We made him go. You'll be surprised by his reaction. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's talk... Air conditioning, yes, air conditioning a few hours ago, the Vancouver Coastal Health uh, sent out a notice uh, encouraging landlords and stratas uh, to remove any barriers or rules against tenants installing air conditioners um, in their suites. Now, the health authority uh, did acknowledge historically in the lower mainland rental and strata housing units. Uh, have uh, tenancy agreements uh, or strata bylaws that uh, do prevent air conditioners from being installed because of concerns over the building envelope or the use of power by these air conditioners and, of course, even aesthetics and how they look. But with summers now getting hotter in the lower mainland, owners, uh, the Vancouver Coastal Health says, need to reconsider previous practices now that notice came out today after news reports earlier this week which show that renters in bc have been receiving notices from landlords warning them against installing air conditioning units uh, in their suites or risk jeopardizing uh, their uh, tenancies joining me now to discuss this fast evolving story is christina phillip she's the organizer with the new westminster tenants union christina thank you for joining us today Hi, Jazz. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we had talked yesterday very briefly about you coming on the show, and here we are just a few hours ago, a notice coming out from uh, Vancouver Coastal Health. First of all, your reaction to uh, this notice from Vancouver Coastal Health.
1: Well, I thought it was very well intentioned, but ultimately not enough. There's no way to guarantee that landlords will actually uh, follow this public health guidance. Um, And we believe, the tenants' union believes, that the province should install more comprehensive and mandatory regulations that. Prohibit landlords from from prohibiting acs
0: mm-hmm. and so what you 're looking for then is legislation to be brought in this fall next spring, whatever it may be, as soon as possible that just makes it illegal by law
1: yes, yes, exactly
0: now I was mentioning earlier this week there are a few stories in regards to uh, tenants getting notice from their landlords after they realize these tenants have purchased these air conditioners that perhaps they shouldn't be using them. Walk me through uh, with you and your organization at the New Westminster Tenants Union. When did you first hear hear about this and what kind of stories were you hearing uh, from these tenants?
1: Yeah. So a couple of months ago um, we had some tenants reach out to us, tenants in buildings in New West owned by Dinesh Chand, who is uh an infamous landlord let's just say uh telling us that they got this email notice prohibiting the installation of acs in their apartments now the notice generated a lot of confusion and concern because it was unclear exactly if it was talking about portable or window units and it uh told uh, tenants that they would be liable for any damages incurred if they installed uh acs um they were advised to consult with electricians about whether or not their units could handle those uh the the ACs but we were told by some tenants that when they tried to follow up on that on exactly what they should be checking for they received no response from the landlord. So Um, was the
0: concern then over power usage uh, impact on the building envelope I mean it seems to me the power usage seems to be the concern but it was was it also just about aesthetics I mean I'm just trying to get a sense of uh, of what the concern specifically was from the landlord.
1: Yeah, the concern from the landlord was that the buildings would not be able to handle the electrical usage of of ACs.
0: Mm-hmm. And what kind of air conditioners? I, I don't expect you to know specifically, but were these the kind, the of portable ones you'd buy, let's say at a at, at a at a Home Depot or a or a Canadian Tire?
1: Uh, We're not sure. Like we said, the notice didn't specify, and there's been no uh, specifications or clarity received from the landlord afterwards.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, how many people came to the New Westminster uh, Tenants Union to bring up their particular case? Was it just one or two or more?
1: uh so we posted about this on our social media encouraging folks to come forward if they receive this notice and we've heard from about 20 people across new west but there have been more uh in facebook community groups and on reddit that have said they've received the same notice
0: do you think this is uh, much bigger than just obviously new westminster and uh, one landlord or a couple landlords
1: i think so since uh uh, the story on with CBC came out. I've actually heard from some of my friends who have had similar experiences who don't live in mm-hmm. U.S.
0: Uh, what do you want to see here? Basically, the ability uh, for uh, any tenant to purchase a portable air conditioner and be able to install it without having to worry about stratas, whatever without without having to worry about any rules a strata would bring in, and that they just should basically have the right to install an air conditioner.
1: Yeah, so first and foremost, we want the government to mandate that landlords upgrade and adapt their buildings to uh, the changing reality uh, of our world, which is that we will be having hotter and smokier summers and landlords, uh, sorry, buildings will need to handle ACs because this is a matter of survival. Uh, We also think there need to be uh, laws brought in specifying how hot certain parts of apartments can get. I understand Ontario has a law stating that at least one room in an apartment has to be uh, less than 26 degrees Celsius in the summer. We have similar laws around how cold it can get in the winter, but it's clear that we need laws now around how hot it can get. So the, there need to be clearer protections so that tenants can make the necessary can take the necessary steps for their survival in hot conditions.
0: Mhm. Now there was a a motion before I think it was the Lower Mainland uh, Government's Association about um, requiring uh, landlords to be responsible for air, air conditioning or cooling just as they are responsible for providing heating. Uh, would you want something like that uh, made mandatory? That particular motion, by the way, um, didn't pass. It was a very, uh, very uh, contentious and very close vote. I suspect it will be brought back uh, for another vote uh, for another year, but that's something you want to see where basically landlords should be held responsible for providing cooling units just as they are responsible for providing heating.
1: I think considering how unaffordable uh, ACs can be to some of our most marginalized community members and how uh, availability is dependent on stock, that's a really good long-term plan. Um, But for now, I I do uh, worry about... advocating specifically for that because I can easily see a case being made against it by landlords on, on the, the basis of affordability. Or another concern for us would be that landlords, uh, specifically landlords like Dinesh Chand, would use uh, something like this to uh, evict their tenants so that they can make the so-called upgrades that are necessary and then just bring new tenants in at a, at a jacked-up rent.
0: Mm-hmm. So right now for you, it, it would require uh, changes to the Tenancy Act or a new legislation brought in by the province that would be blanketed for the entire province that basically says that, look, no landlord should be able to forbid uh, somebody wanting to purchase a, a portable uh, a cooling unit. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Take care.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, well, the union representing port workers in BC withdrew a 72-hour strike notice that had uh, sparked, of course, concerns the province's ports could be shut down by Saturday. Uh, And, of course, when they announced that, it was effective immediately. However, nobody knows what's going to transpire over the next couple of days. They just have not. We've had no clarity in regards to whether the agreement that they had initially tentatively agreed to, which included uh, a 19% wage hike over four years. So it'll be interesting to see what transpires over the next 24 to 48 hours. Now, wages and benefits uh, obviously are negotiated in these uh, negotiations. That's what happens. Uh, but at its core, the issue and concern here for those workers is fighting automation. In 1993, the Dutch port uh, Dutch port uh, in Rotterdam became the first to introduce uh, machine automation when it came to ports. Uh, since then, many other ports have followed uh, in Asia, in Europe. But at the same time, not every port is automated. In fact, very few are. There's 1,000 container ports In the world, and about 53 are automated or close to fully automated. So that's about 4% of the total global container terminal capacity. However, it is all headed in that direction. So it remains the existential threat for port workers. And it's not just port workers. Look at the uh, strike that we're seeing right now with actors and writers in Hollywood as well. Uh, they are of course fighting for better working conditions and better wages, but they also want to be paid uh, residuals. Those payments they get when, when uh, sh- uh, shows used to go into syndication. Well today, Netflix just buys those products right in the beginning and there are no residuals paid on top of that. They're concerned about artificial intelligence, uh, think about the fact that artificial intelligence one day may be able to uh, create an actor that is so real that you actually don't need a human being or that artificial intelligence could actually write sitcoms and movies that you may not need Writers, so for the uh, creative industry, it's a true and existential challenge as well. Now, machines will be able to carry out more of the tasks done by humans, uh, perhaps complement the work that humans do, and even perform some tasks that go beyond what humans can do. As a result, occupations will decline, others will grow, and many will change. That is the reality for the modern worker. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this destruction, some would call it creative destruction; others, others would call it perhaps uh, the end of a certain way of life for the middle class. Margarita Dovgal is the Managing Director of Resource Works Society, and she joins us now. Margareta, thank you for joining us.
2: Good to be here with you, Jazz. Good so, afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. So, you know, with what's happening at the port, with what's happening with Hollywood and many other industries, uh, I mean, it is fair, I think, for workers to be concerned, is it not?
2: I would say so, but uh, at the same time, it's a global trend. It's the crux of modernity, and uh, Canada's economy, like that of every country, has a pretty strong responsibility to be pursuing whatever economic edge we can afford, because that's a thing that reliably keeps quality of life high for everyone who lives here. And then in turn, governments and businesses also have a major responsibility to bring people along. And as we see the market driving ahead on innovation in all industries, uh, you know, copywriters are experiencing some real challenges right now finding work, uh, The tools that are used to perform those economic functions change. And when people's skills can't keep up, they face job insecurity, maybe job loss. You know, they say that on the net, uh, there's a lot of unmet demand right now for jobs. Uh, We have a very, very tight labor market. uh, But that doesn't mean that every single worker who loses a job because of automation is then going to go find another one right away. Uh, So that has a real human impact. And uh, with poor automation, you know, I hear Full automation is a little bit unlikely. It's a very complex uh, series of procedures to dock a ship into port. But adopting those new tools does keep us competitive. It enables everyone in this trading nation. And uh, we really rely on our trade to benefit from the economic prosperity that our ports provide. Mm-hmm. And we've seen huge impacts on our supply chains over the last couple of years. There's been blockades, a pandemic, a climate impacts like fires and floods. So they do need that space to recover. But it does require us to have compassionate, people-focused policy solutions that get the right balance of skills and technology and enable us to be competitive in a very, very uncertain global economy.
0: Uh, in regards to the port strike itself, now, you could argue, look, they're not going to automate the port that is there but you know if they're going to build a brand new port in this case roberts bank one's one's going to assume that thing is going to be fully automated uh to the point there's going to be very few people actually working there that is the way to go so does the, does the union not have a right to say wait a minute here we are f- We have to fight for our life here because in the case of, uh, I think the, it was the Los Angeles port, they automated, and I've seen the visuals, they lost, I think, 600 longshoremen jobs there. This remains the crisis for the port and port workers should they not have a right, in this case, even if it, if it, it causes some harm, temporary harm to the economy, because in many ways one could argue uh, their, their, their job may not exist in 10 years or even 15 years. Sure. Well,
2: collective bargaining is an important and necessary tool. And, you know, these uh, poor workers absolutely have the right to have their concerns heard. Um, it's been a long process. I think back in April, they initially indicated they started the negotiation process. And, you know, it led us to last 20 odd days of uh, our ports being largely non-functional on the West Coast. Uh, it's cost us a million in, uh, in inbound and outbound trade. Um, and that's not to say that, those who do critical functions can have their views and needs represented fairly and equitably. Um, That's a really important piece of how things work in a functional democracy like Canada. Uh, But we also really need to think consciously just about the way the world is changing as a whole. And I think the solution that we're not seeing nearly enough of right now is just investing in people's skills and their ability to stay at the level that they need with the skills that they have to meet the future economies needs. And that's going yeah. to very hard
0: across the board. But do you think government can fundamentally address this? Look, if, if you're a longshoreman, let's say you're making the average salary, let's say $130,000 a year, uh, literally you would have to retrain for a new industry uh, because if you're replaced by a um uh, through automation you may be a mill right so you have a skill set and perhaps you can use that skill set somewhere else but do you think government big big government can actually fundamentally bring in something that's nimble where you retrain workers and they can move on to 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 other industries because government has difficulty just helping out workers when one sawmill closes how do you do that with an entire industry like 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 the port because that automation automation once you start the process it moves very quickly
2: yeah. If our volume overall, I, our export volume can grow as a result of new innovative technologies like automation and we can preserve those jobs, I think that's the, the best solution. Um, you know, I, I, I would like us to be in a position where we are looking Closely at all of the issues we have with labor market inefficiency. Um, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Uh, we have huge challenges in our healthcare system. There's a lot of folks with foreign uh, training and credentials that are just aren't recognized right now. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really sick of you know talking to my Uber driver and learning he's an engineer and his day job is trucking and he does Uber on the side and there's not a chance that he feels he'll ever find a job as an engineer here in Canada. Uh, and, and that's a really common story. So we, we have a lot of these problems that structurally need to be resolved. It requires massive amounts of coordination, but I think the political will is there. And just because things have been difficult to accomplish in the past, I feel like the imperative is here and it requires that political will to be expressed and for governments to act on it. You know, put more money into it, work closely with all the other jurisdictions and with industry who has a real active interest in making sure that they can uh,
0: meet their business needs to grow. So do you think these jobs should be protected even through legislation? Or do you think let let the market do what it does, let innovation and technology uh, uh, move forward and do, do whatever it does? in these situations should these port jobs be protected i mean they're still going to be around right now but should they be protected should they be legislated in 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 a, in a in a in a in a an employment agreement or we just let them go away if 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 they end up if we lose those jobs because of technology so be it that is the nature of technology that is nature of creative destruction that they shouldn't be protected is that what you're saying
2: I'm not saying we should be heartless about it. I think the collective agreement uh, and, you know, you said 130 K a year is the median salary. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the collective agreement does a pretty good job uh, defending those interests uh, of those workers. Uh, They have thousands of workers under their umbrella. It's a, flexible pool of labor uh, so the union has a, a lot of marketing power even moving forward in this scenario and no, I, I don't think anyone should you know, go and uh, knock everything down uh, in the interest of just letting the market uh, rip and roar free. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to have a, a human touch and a human element to this and to be compassionate about it but um, that doesn't mean that we need to turn our back on innovation because that's the thing that's not going to just disadvantage workers in these industries but it's going to disadvantage all of us as Canadians mm-hmm. if we can't effectively embrace change and innovation and coordinate where needed you know offer the solutions that are needed from a policy and funding perspective to get to better outcomes so i, I wouldn't say the ship on that has sailed uh well ships are sailing now again finally from <laughs> the ports but uh, there's still a lot of work ahead and i, I don't think it's uh either or kind of scenario we need to do all of the above protect rights and also invest in people
0: yeah i'll believe it once the deal has been ratified it's not there yet so hopefully we'll get there very <laughs> soon Margareta, thank you so much for your time today Thanks so much, Jazz. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Richard, thank you. This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Brian, did you do that? Did you produce that?
3: of, course, of uh, course
0: well done well done. i guess that's a new opening for the richard zussman segment <laughs> joining me now in school bc Legislative
4: board richard zussman welcome richard it's it's good to be next i'm not sure i stack up with pete davidson in <laughs> terms of the sort of impact i may have had on your life jazz but it's nice <laughs> to be next
0: i did not know they were <laughs> going to do that at all so <laughs> hey welcome aboard i know you and i've talked to, about surrey a lot but I just wanted to go through a few numbers with you um, because, yes, Mike Farnworth, our Solicitor general, came, yesterday, came out yesterday and said, look, continue the police transition of the Surrey Police Service and dump the RCMP. Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey, as we know, uh, says that uh, she is not happy. Uh, she has not spoken to the press, that she did send out a press release, of course, and in that press release... Uh, Quoted the Police Act saying municipalities decide on what type of policing a community ultimately wants, uh, not the Solicitor General. Well, he disagrees, so be it. Well, lots of opinions on this issue, but I wanted to go through just a few numbers here with you. uh, And just bear with me for a second here. Now, in 2020, there was the OPAL report that estimated the transition for the Surrey Police Service would cost about $40 million in one time. Capital and transitional costs. The city maintains that capital items are estimated between one seventy-five to two hundred eighty million dollars. So, significant difference in what the Opal report in twenty twenty said in this recent report from the city. Now, some of those costs can be amortized, but ultimately, between the Opal report's five-year projection. And even the updated low estimate from the city, there is a difference of $135 million. If I took the $280 million the city says, which is the high end of their estimation, there's still a $240 million difference. Now, the reason I bring this up, we all know the province has offered $150 million to cover costs. Now, if there's a $240 million difference between the Opal report and and the city report, uh, the one hundred and fifty will not cover those costs. Now, the city has said, based on their own calculations, that only about twenty, the one hundred and fifty million dollars will only cover about twenty percent of the actual costs the city would incur if the transition to the SBS were to continue. Now, keep in mind, these are the city's numbers, but you see a fundamental separation between what the province says this may cost and what the city says it's going to cost. So, huge, huge difference. Now, today, Eric Woodward, uh, the mayor of Langley Township, was on with our colleague Mike Smith in regards to the overall policing situation for the region. And even he said that the SPS transition will cost taxpayers more. Take a listen. I talked
3: to... Mayor Locke, on a, you know, on occasions when we meet up uh, regionally. And, you know, I believe her and her council when they tell me it's going to be significantly more than $150 million. And it's only $30 million per year over five years. I understand there'll be significant upfront capital costs as well. So it's, it's really, it's, you know, it's about this assertion that it's not safe. If the, you know, I, I didn't, we weren't hearing that last November. And, and here we are. We have the province overruling a duly elected council and the decision that it has made. And it's concerning to me and, and a few other mayors that are wondering, you know, wh- where is this overreach going to stop?
0: Now, yesterday, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, was on this show after he made the, uh, the, the initial announcement. I asked him whether or not there will be more money offered to Surrey beyond the $150 million. Uh, he gave me a broad answer. I then asked again, I just want to reiterate, will there be uh, any money, extra money for Surrey beyond the $150 million? Take a listen to his answer.
4: We made the uh, the $150 million offer based on numbers provided by the, uh, the City of Surrey uh, in their report that we received back in February. I think to get to the full transition, uh, taking about three years. Uh, so that $150 million is there to deal with those costs. The $150 million is there. Uh, I have said uh, it's there in the past. Uh, that's there for the City of Surrey. Even though there have been times when they said, oh, well, no, it's just pie in the sky." No, that money is there for the uh, for the city of Surrey.
0: That money is there, but no uh, inclination from him saying we're going to give you any more. So, hence a huge difference in what the city says this transition is actually going to cost, and even the money the province is offering, which means BC taxpayers are still dragged in. But does, I mean, he didn't give me a clear answer saying 150s the clear defined amount. He Appeared to me, certainly, to give himself a bit more wiggle room that perhaps they may be able to provide a little bit more money. So that's a long introduction to get to you, uh, Richard, but I wanted to make sure we had the numbers straight. Uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think this is going to cost more money beyond the $150 million uh, that uh, the province is offering?
4: I do. And there's a lot to unpack here, Jess. Like you mentioned right off the top, this issue of the Police Act. What the mayor fails to understand here is one of the provisions in the Police Act is municipalities make the decision. But ultimately, it's about public safety. And it was clear the RCMP could not provide that moving forward with staffing challenges. Let's put it aside. I know we want to focus on the money. I believe it's going to cost more than $150 million, but ultimately that was the price tag put on the table by the city. And when these promises were made all the way back when Doug McCallum was mayor of Surrey, it was clear from the province that in making this change, these are costs that must be bore by the city of Surrey. And yes, a lot has changed since then and the RCMP has had challenges But ultimately, the city must try to absorb this. What is the real number? I'm not sure it is ever going to become clear to us on exactly what the costs are when you talk about additional costs for staffing. The one thing that we don't acknowledge that often is the RCMP is in the midst of negotiating a new deal. They are going to get a significant raise, as we've seen in almost every unionized discussion over the last uh, year to two years that gap is not discussed you know what i mean like if if Mm -hmm. the surrey rcmp remained that those wage pressures would increase as well i don't think the mayor factored in any of those costs so it's complicated and ultimately the the person that's going to end up paying for this is the taxpayer in surrey based on their property taxes but the reality is there is one taxpayer here, right? That if it's the city that gets you or the province that gets you, someone is going to ding you for these costs as everything is seemingly getting more expensive. I know, again, a bit of a convoluted answer here, but Mm -hmm. I believe that we are going to get to the point where it's going to cost more because everything is costing more, but ultimately, the $150 million was put in that report, submitted to the province as part of this conversation, and that is the mu- the number the province decided to use because that was the one that they were given.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, but I mean, I think if you're another municipality or if you're just a B.C. taxpayer, you've got to be incredibly angry and saying, look, you're the city that chose this transition. You cover your costs. Why are you stick it to, sticking it to me as a Port Moody taxpayer, a Langley taxpayer, a Delta taxpayer, a Richmond taxpayer, a Prince George taxpayer? But, you know, you wanted to make the transition, make the transition. I mean, there's got to be some pushback, not only on the Surrey, but even the provincial government saying, what are you doing here? That's their yeah. problem. Let them figure it out.
4: I think this is the pushback we're getting from the minister. The challenge here is that Mayor Locke wants to frame this as a force being forced upon her. The reality is the promise she made in the last election was not realistic. There was not a path forward. And yes, it wasn't her choice, although we have to remember she was part of Doug McCallum's caucus when all of this started, right? She was elected under his banner as part Mm -hmm. of this promise to go to the Surrey Police Service. That was a decision that was made by a previous administration that was voted in and they got it past the point of no return. And ultimately here now, because that council wasn't honest with the public and honest with the province. Oh, Richard, you're right. They should be the one that bear these costs. I know it's Part of that team that originally forced us upon the city of surrey yeah richard thank you so
0: much for your time this is an interesting story it's certainly not going anywhere i have a feeling we're going to be talking about this for many more weeks and perhaps months to come that's for sure thank you so much
4: i'm going on vacation jazz so we'll catch up when i'm Done. I'm going down to Seattle to see the Blue Jays play, so maybe we'll check in from the border tomorrow because I'm guessing it's going to be insane, especially with that Taylor Swift concert happening in Seattle too. Oh, that's (laughs) happening too. Oh my
0: God, Talia Miller, one of our producers, is going down there as well. Yeah, that's and she's there for two nights as well. Blue
4: Jays in Seattle, Taylor Swift in Seattle. Seattle says they're basically full for the weekend, so if you're thinking about going down, the city's full. Don't bother coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Richard, thank you. Have yourself a wonderful have have yourself a wonderful time. Sure, many of you heard of Storm Brewing. It's Vancouver's oldest brewery. Well, recently it was notified by the city of Vancouver that it must remove a mural that's decorated the business in the 300-block commercial dive for the past decade due to bylaw violations. Joining me now is Mike Crozier, general manager of Storm Brewing. Mike, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So, walk me through this. First and foremost, when did you, when were you notified uh, by the city that there was some sort of bylaw violation?
3: So at the end of May, um, I think it was May 30th exact, we received uh, a letter that we needed to get mural permits for the murals we had. Um, And then we had 60 days to get those permits. Um, And then once I looked into getting those permits, uh, we discovered that we wouldn't be approved and we would need to uh, paint over them.
0: So just to clarify for our audience who haven't been uh, to your location, uh the mural itself is uh, the, uh, j- on the side of the entire building, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's been there just to confirm 10 for 10 years. Uh just it's just over 9 years. Just over 9 years. Uh, hmm. and did you need permission prior when you put it up at 9 years ago?
3: Um at that point um I wasn't working here but the the owner received permission from the owner of the building.
0: So you put it up. Okay. So it's been there for nine years. And, um, is it fair to say people get pictures of themselves with, with, with the, almost, almost,
3: almost daily. We have groups of people taking pictures in front of it. Um, it also just being in a industrial area, it's, it's nice to have something that shows people where we where we are <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you say when 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 the business went in to get get the permit it it, it it wouldn't get the permit why because the initial permission didn't come from the city I'm trying to understand why all of a sudden this is happening yeah
3: so we I was told that because um, the mural has beer in it which is the product we sell and rats in it, which is like a big part of our branding, yeah. that it, it was considered a, an advertisement, so it wouldn't get approved for, for a mural.
0: Oh, because of the name Storm is written in there. Well, no,
3: the, the, the logos, we, we might still be able to keep the logo, but it's more the, the content of the mural. You're not allowed to, to have um, anything that promotes your
0: business in a mural. Oh wow, interesting, interesting. Um have you been able to talk to any elected officials? Um I did talk
3: uh to a couple councilors today and it seems like it's moving in the right direction. I don't know if we'll will we'll see what happens with with our situation, but at least it looks like this won't happen to other people, which is great.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah Kirby Young, uh, one uh, Vancouver City Councillor, was on my colleague Jill Bennett show uh, yeah. earlier today. Yeah, she came by today. Yeah, oh, that's good. And she was on Jill Bennett's show today talking about this mural. I want you to take a listen to what she had to say.
1: As soon as I heard about this yesterday, I reached out to city staff last night and I'm still waiting to get more information back on that as to why this is suddenly happening now. Um, I think what it does, though, is that it shows that we've got some bylaws that are really stifling creative expression in our city and allowing our small businesses to run and create fun and and engaging experiences for people. And so we want to save the storm uh, brewing mural. But what we also really want to do, I think, is fix this bylaw because to me, it's perfectly reasonable to allow a local business to have a great piece of art. I'm looking into options to amending that bylaw.
0: Uh, it sounds like good news uh, moving forward. So do you think you may be caught as, as as the business that may have to change, or do you think you can still save the mural?
3: Um, I'm hoping. Um, we, we only have, I think, about 10 days left until they could potentially uh, start finding us for it, mm-hmm. um, unless we have a plan in action, which most of that plan is painting over it. Um, so unless something happens in the next week or so, we might have to move forward to that with that. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I If you would have asked me at the beginning of the day, I would have said absolutely not, but I'm feeling a little bit more uh, optimistic
0: now. That, that's really good. Um, just out of curiosity, how is the uh, a, a craft brewery business these days? I know uh, it's, it's, it's doing well in regards to popularity, but with that, of course, comes a lot of competition. What's it been like the, the last little while?
3: Um, it's been great. Um, we we kind of had to change our focus post-COVID to more um, packaging product and cans and, and whatnot, um, which has done great for us. Um, and we find that people are finally kind of coming, coming back to the brewery more and more
0: mm mm-hmm, mm hmm um in the decision I know you said you weren't there initially, but do you know the decision why it was you decided let's say uh to uh you know set up in on commercial drive many people pick the suburbs, sometimes it's easier to get industrial space all of that uh what was the reason to to stay in vancouver
3: um well so James the owner he's been here for twenty it's our twenty nine year anniversary in september mm-hmm um, and originally, he moved here because Shaftbury was right around the corner, ah, okay. and he he was kind of thinking that it would turn into a, a brewery district. And unfortunately, shortly after, I think '96, Shaftbury moved, and it took uh, took about fifteen twenty years before all the breweries to to move into. <laughs> To start, what he thought it
0: would be. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, fingers crossed. I hope everything turns out for you. We'll stay in touch uh, yeah. uh, over the next few days, and hopefully, uh, there is a happy ending here in regards to making sure uh, you stay, obviously, at that location. But more importantly, of course, the mural stays uh, because it is part part of the, uh, uh, the the culture there in that street. And as you say, people come by and get their pictures taken literally on a daily basis. That tells you everything. So thanks yeah. so thanks so much today, Mike. Really appreciate yeah, it. No- No problem. Appreciate your time and uh, thanks for the support. It's the cinematic event of the summer. Barbie and three-hour epic Oppenheimer will roll out in theaters tonight. Now, the films have little in common. But uh, dedicated cinephiles are devoting a full day of their lives to both. It's the Barbenheimer double feature, and it started its life as a um, uh, mostly, well, it started at, like most phenomena do, as a meme. But as more people tweeted fan-made posters of Margot Robbie's Barbie smiling in front of a mushroom cloud, the idea of a, of a day event spent at the movie started to sound like a good idea. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about Barbenheimer and whether or not it will actually help the cinema industry, which is desperately in need of a few hits. Uh, Joining us now is Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. Rick, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. So what do you make of this Barbenheimer? Uh, I guess in the old days, they'd call it a double feature, but it's actually caught a a lot of attention when it comes to the culture. Uh, Are you planning to do a a a Barbenheimer double feature this weekend?
5: No, not I. I will see both movies, but I will see Oppenheimer tomorrow Mm -hmm. and spend three hours of my life doing that. And the next day, an hour and 54 minutes to see Barbie. Uh, so, I won't do the two together. And this is interesting, though, uh, because from time to time, uh, usually in the summertime, studios do this kind of thing. And by this kind of thing, I mean they have two tent pole uh, productions and they have diametrically opposed audiences. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's quite smart. Uh, back in '07, for example, another Christopher Nolan film, Nolan, of course, uh, is the director of Oppenheimer, uh, The Dark Knight went up against Mamma Mia. Mm-hmm. So here we have a superhero movie up against a musical. And uh, the year after that, we had The Devil Wears Prada facing off against um, um, oh, Superman Returns. So... Uh, Actually, this worked out well for the studios. So what happened here is there's sort of a a sense that there's a competition and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. I think everybody will win uh, because the audience for the Barbie movie is nothing like the audience for Oppenheimer. And that's good because it gives everybody an opportunity to go to the theater, see what they want to see, a blockbuster picture, rather than having to wait for some other weekend jazz. So I think it's a good thing and uh, I'll certainly see both movies myself, that's for sure. Yeah, and the
0: fact that there's that word of mouth, I mean, even they're asking Tom Cruise and he said look I won't be watching them back to back but he's setting us I think Friday night for Oppenheimer and then Barbie for Saturday much like you. Uh, How desperately or badly does the movie industry need both movies to do really well? Well they
5: do uh, you're you're right the the words are right desperately and they need it badly. Um, There have been some good movies doing well but not to the degree that they must. So, uh, for example, the uh, Indiana Jones movie, still in theaters, uh, is doing okay, but only okay. It is not a blockbuster. And in some places, it's going to have to do better than in others. Uh, the overseas market is going to say this one's bacon, because it is not likely to make enough in the North American marketplace to do as well as it needs to. So here we have these two films, and it's a publicist's dream. Uh, you couldn't have asked for a better scenario, uh, having the Internet people get involved, uh, having all of the social media stuff get involved. And now uh, we're going to see who wins and who loses. But uh, as I said, I think that everybody's going to win here. Audiences are going to win because these appear to be two very good movies. Mm -hmm. I've not seen either one in preview mode yet, but I have heard that the reviews for those people who have seen them, uh, the critics that got a screening on Tuesday, have been positive, extremely positive for both films. So I think it's good for everybody. Oppenheimer, um, a very, very dark and explicit sh- uh, movie about uh, the, the potential end of humanity, uh, Barbie at the other end of the spectrum, you, know, you may not remember. Uh, some people may, some people may not, but uh, prior to 1959, when Barbie came on the market, uh, children who played with dolls, typically girls, but children who played with dolls, had babies. All of these dolls were babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gave them a bottle, you changed them, uh, you sat them up in a high chair to feed them. When Barbie came along, suddenly, young girls now had a doll that they could dress up and they could go out and they could get in Barbie's car and get in Barbie's motor home, and get in Barbie's dream house and then meet Ken. And it changed the whole genre Mm -hmm. of being a child and playing with dolls. This movie is now a step in that same direction, saying you know what? Uh, Don't expect a silly movie here. Expect something from director Greta Gerwig that is very, very specific and tells a great story about feminism and about dolls and about uh, the way we look at ourselves. So each of these movies has a very different point of view. Each of these movies really looks interesting and appealing and As I said, jazz to your initial question, I think everybody's going to win with this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I like the fact that they're 180 degrees apart from each other, and one's very fun and a little different, and the other one is is a three-hour epic in the case of Oppenheimer, and it's very different and dark, as you say. Um, But I love the fact that they're different. Um, What does this mean? And maybe I'm reading too much into this. Could this be perhaps the start of uh, us as moviegoers going, you know what? We're gonna go to movies like this again and perhaps pay less attention to the uh, the, the Hollywood superhero, the, the the Marvel comic that they've, they've dominated the ho- films for so long in the last few years that has turned off a lot of people from movie going. Do you think this could be perhaps uh, 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 maybe the early stages of us going back to movies again and, and not having to be enticed by you know Marvel Comics?
5: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, nothing wrong with Marvel Comics, obviously, mm. but, and there's a big but here, uh, but all of these Marvel things are sequels, and when you look at the movies that have uh, come on stream uh, this year just alone, uh, 80% of the films that we've gone to see are sequels or prequels, uh, The great thing about Barbie and about Oppenheimer is that they are one of a kind. They're brand new. They're right there standing on their own. And yes, I think that offers a lot more to moviegoers than just seeing another iteration of the Marvel Comics universe or the DC Comics universe. So I hope... That um, uh, that this really does as well as it should. I expect it to do very well both of these films, and I expect the the uh, scenario that you roll, that you roll out here to be one that they, could be repeated. Mind you, we have to have the product. That's the issue. Uh, but both of these movies have been in production for a long time. They both have big promotional and marketing budgets. So we'll see how it goes. But. Anything, anything to change up uh, the movie going experience, I think is a very positive thing jazz
0: yeah absolutely i mean i love i love uh, action action movies and i and I do like superhero movies but it has gone way too far to the point. There's nothing new coming that is interesting or different that I, I that I think would you know catch the imagination of people. And Oppenheimer uh, is certainly uh, fits that, and Barbie, in its own unique way, fits that as well. So fingers crossed, they both do well, and hopefully some changes when it comes to the box office as well. Rick, thank you. Thank you, Jazz.